So thank you so much for doing it. I'm sorry for the technical difficulties. Okay, yeah, it just it just happens with all these things. So first of all, I mean, could you pronounce your name so I get it right? <laughs> of course, it's Elena. Yeah. Bacelli. Okay, Elena Bacelli. That's yeah. great. So how I want to start this would be from sharing just a brief detail regarding what kind of topics you would be interested it's uh, because i mean i'm i'm very much interested in all the social researchers in my background a little bit of it is in sociology yeah. so that's why i'm really excited to hear please yeah right so um should i say a little bit about myself first where where i'm based at greenwich and things like that please. uh right so uh i'm a senior lecturer in sociology i joined um greenwich university a year and a half ago more or less and uh, i'm currently based in the department of history politics and social sciences um i'd like to well, present my research in three different strands although these strands are really uh, difficult to separate they do overlap Maybe it's clearer if I highlight the three different strands. So the first one is um, my research in uh, creative and participatory methods. So I've been using these methods for a while now. And um, I have a book actually coming out next week. It's going to be delivered to my doorstep. Um, it's, it's entitled Embodied Research in Migration Studies uh, Using Creative and Participatory Methods. Uh, maybe we can talk about it later. Yeah. The second strand of my research um, is concerned with migration and diversity. Um, as part of this research strand, uh, we... Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. With two colleagues, um, Nicola Montagna and Mick Dines, I just published the 2018 Sociology Special Issue. Um, sociology is the BSA um, official journal, and uh, it only has one special issue a year. So uh, in the special issue, we looked at the nexus between integration. Um, a second strand, can I, can I say? Uh, yeah, can, okay. Yeah. A second strand uh, focuses on migration and diversity, um, and in particular with all my research um, with women organizations um, and migrant women. So as part of this trend, I recently co-edited a special issue for the journal Sociology. So sociology is the official BSA, Brit British Sociological Association journal, um, on uh, migration and the crisis in Europe. This special issue looks at the nexus between migration um, and the crisis and really problematizes the concept of crisis and how crisis and crisis narratives have become a way to really interpret a lot of social uh, phenomena and to trigger the kind of responses that are given at a policy level. Yep. It's on the ground. So, I mean, so there are two, three topics here. And one of the first topic which I would like to, you know, go into detail would be the methodology which you are using, which you yeah. said uh, creative and digital participatory. So this yeah. was very intriguing to me yeah. to see this yeah. method yeah. As, as a very um, legitimate uh, method where you are actually collecting data and putting your report into these sociology journals. But before that, I I always found it that uh, anyone who picks up social research, they must be living a diverse life. So, so what what would be your personal journey into actually deciding that oh you know what I want to do social research or sociology, and then you can say that you know what how you came to the topics, which is I guess migration is one of the yeah. most interesting one. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't talk about the, the, the third strand, which was the one on uh, the gendered right to the city okay. and uh, the way in which 
you know, the right to the city can be interpreted in a gender perspective. But I think it's interesting because it now connects with the question that you're asking, because I think this is exactly where my journey starts. Mm. And this was actually the topic of my PhD. So I did my studies in Milan. I studied pol um, political sciences, and this was my um, sort of graduate and postgraduate studies. Then at some point, when I was in Milan, I was... Um, I was an activist and uh, I was very interested in feminist issues uh, for p both personal and political reasons I left Milan and I moved to Berlin and this is when I started thinking about my PhD in Berlin I came across really intellectually stimulating people and ideas and this is when uh, my uh, first idea of studying the city and its gendered um, sort of uh, declinations came about, especially because the city has always been studied from a very kind of masculine perspective. And um, Henri Lefebvre himself, who is normally regarded as the person who first came up with this idea of right to the city, has completely neglected a gender dimension. So um, this is where my journey started. Um, when I was based in, in Germany, however, my German wasn't good enough to write a PhD in Germany. It was okay to have a conversation, but not to write a PhD. So I decided to move to England instead, where I could like, write a PhD in English while improving my English in the meanwhile and do it for a reason. Um, and um, right, so yeah. So I did my PhD exactly okay. on that topic. So that's how yeah. you yeah. started getting interested into... In, in this kind of uh, topics. And mm. then when I finished my PhD in 2009, uh, and uh, in my PhD I looked at Milan and I interviewed a feminist activist uh, of the 70s and contemporary one to, um, like, you know, understand the way in which they appropriate urban space in different ways um, and how they conceive public the public sphere because this is very central to any feminist debate about the city. Um, I finished my PhD in 2009 and in 2010 I started working at the SPSE which is the Social Policy Research Center and Middlesex University. Despite the name this is a center that actually works on migration and uh, this is when I started working intensively on migration issues, working with really pioneer scholars in the field, um, and it was great. It was a huge learning, you know, learning curve. Um, and I worked on several projects, like European projects, you know, funded by local authorities and national ones. So it was, it was an excellent experience. So you just did a um, research, and which is pretty much, I think, close to migrant women. Uh, or I think it is on migrant women. Th th those are the sample size uh, yeah. for for your study. But the methodology which you use, uh, yes. that 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 is something <laughs> which I want to yeah. explore more in depth. <laughs> yes. Uh, what I what is this methodology? If if let's say if, uh, I mean I have no idea. I've maybe heard it first time when yeah. I read one of your papers. Really? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, just give me from you know scratch like how yeah. did you who developed it how did you came across yes. it or how did you engage with it okay that's a really good question because i would say that the starting point for it uh, strangely was my teaching because when i was at middlesex i was um, directing a, an msc in social research and i was also teaching qualitative research and i think it is it's a really um, good example of how research and teaching can really mutually um, reinforce each other, yeah, and that how the interplay between the two can be fruitful. Because uh, teaching qualitative research really made me uh, engage really deeply with um, epistemological assumptions about the way in which research is produced, knowledge is produced. And um, I came across as well, feminist research, because this was clearly my interest, and um, the whole reflexivity idea. So the whole acknowledgement that when we actually produce data, 
we have to also take into account the extent to which our positionalities as researchers, so our gender, our age, our social class, our ethnicity, plays a role in producing this data. So research is not objective. We have to interrogate the social locations from which research is produced. And so I think this was really the drive for me to then expand and, and work with. Also, I don't, I don't like to call migrant women vulnerable. Uh, I prefer to say people in that there are women in vulnerable situations because they, ha they hold their own power. Yeah, that is negotiated differently according to different situations. Very often they are very resilient women and uh, the, say the, the public contemporary debate uh, does enough uh, damage mm -hmm. <laughs> in depicting them as passive. So what is collage making methodology? Collage, a safe space is created where uh, women are given the time to actually collect the memories and also the experiences that they want to disclose. So it's a much more ethical and less invasive way of going about it. And uh, after that, I asked uh, after the uh, and they do it in group, which is also quite pleasant. Um, and then after that, for them, you know, and then uh, I asked them what they've done one to one and I record their voices when they describe their individual collages. And uh, uh, then I write about uh, the narratives. So I use the narratives in juxtaposition with the actually, uh, you know, what they've done with the actual collage. Um, and that worked really well. So, so you are talking about generating knowledge and actually questioning certain methods which are already very popular is is that one of the uh, aspects of this yes uh, in my work uh, especially mm, this is conceptualized quite a lot uh, from a theoretical perspective in my book but also in the article on collage that you read um, i use this concept of embodiment and embodiment is really about acknowledging that the body is both material and is discursive and that the body tends to reproduce uh, discursive regimes in ways that we don't always control really consciously. Okay, so an embodiment is also about acknowledging that um, the body and the mind are not separate, they are one. And uh, Western epistemology has tended to really separate the two, privileging um, the logos and reason um, that has been traditionally identified with men and the masculine, um, as opposed to nature uh, and the body and the feminine. Okay, so th this is <laughs> too, like this is yeah. amazing. This is a little bit, little bit. Okay, so l let me ask you t for more yeah. clarification. <laughs> So, yeah. uh, so I'm going to maybe ask you questions from my point of view That's and sure. then and then you can be like, oh, no, this is completely wrong. OK. And I or, or maybe, <laughs> oh, no, what, what about this side? So right. so th th I mean, I'm what what what, I, what is exciting in what you just said is that you are actually questioning the blueprint of most of the research which has been done on these kind of topic where we actually generate knowledge and that ultimately goes to build policy. But what you are offering is something um, more uh, compassionate towards the people who we are researching yeah. and then trying to encompass uh, holistic values, which also include that what is going on with the body and rather than just thinking about hard memory-driven truths. Is, is, is this something which we just talked about? Mm. I think your question about policies and what inform policies is really interesting because funders, uh, even when you apply for research, tend to really privilege hard data and uh, quality, uh, quantitative data. So I'm not arguing against quantitative data. I'm saying that quantitative data do something different and yeah. that quantitative data should be complemented by qualitative data, and that all-round research should take on board 
both approaches because they lead to different kind of findings and uh, help you to conceptualize uh, social issues in a more um, complete way. So, so, as I'm so we are talking about, I mean, perceptions and uh, no. Uh, it's not really perceptions. Is that if you think about uh, qualitative data, qualitative data uses uh, personal experience, draws on people's personal experiences, because this is all you can ask when in the context of a focus group, in the cost, in the context of a, of a structured interview, a semi-structured interview. Um, so people's experiences are really at the core of what uh, qualitative research is. But that doesn't mean that this is wishy-washy and that you don't have to go about it in a very rigorous way. Because when you problematize quantitative research, quantitative research is also um, based on people's experiences, the experiences of people who respond to a survey or the experiences of people who design the survey. So, I mean, uh, this is... Um uh, so I think you, you're trying to encompass like a whole emotional range also of, of a participant who are who is actually participating in this research. So encompassing emotional and their stories with both of these uh, ideas would actually maybe bring out a more honest experience, which we are trying to get out of them. Is, is, is this something? Yeah, it is. Uh, honest experiences, but uh, the final aim is not to get to an absolute truth. So it's about how people make sense of their own experiences. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, of course, I mean, it makes sense pretty much. It's, it's about well, we have a sense of subject. So, of yeah. course, we are yeah. thinking inside of us. Yeah. And uh, why would you ignore that? First of all, this is very important, which you yeah. are right that it has yeah. been ignored many times. Yeah. And it's easy, I think, in uh, sciences, the, the hard sciences, to maybe just be objective or have a perception of uh, being objective. Even now they are realizing that, oh, no, we can't even be objective. Even if you put a light on, it just changes. Yeah. So, yeah, the critical social psychology is working a lot with, with these concepts and concept of self. Yeah. So... If you have a body which have a self and that is how the um, interaction with the world is coming out to encompass body and the sense of self, I think would make a m way much more sense if we are trying to uh, get to some of the, I, I, again, I'm, I don't mean truth, not, yeah. not, not to the truth because yeah. we don't know what the truth yeah. is, but closer to what the experience of a person we are studying is. Yes. Is, is. So yes, it's about welcoming this experience and representing this experience in, a, in an ethical way that takes on board people's um, emotions, as we said before, as well. And uh, yeah. so, so you talked about body and mind. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what do you mean by that? How do you define that? And how did you, oh. you know, include? <laughs> it's okay. It's, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, when I talked about um, body and mind, I suppose I was referring to the kind of paradigm that has shaped we Western production of knowledge. And uh, I was referring to Descartes, who has said, I think, therefore I am. And by doing that, he has separated the mind from the body. There have been philosophers who have tried to overcome the separation. For instance, Spinoza has been amazing in arguing for monism and bringing them together. And then there was this other um, French philosopher called Merleau-Ponty, who has really been critical of the way in which knowledge is produced in the social sciences and the positivist paradigm that really uh, cuts the body out in so many ways and privileges uh, more um, numerical, quantitative uh, ways of producing knowledge. Then feminists um, and feminist scholars, um, philosophers have come in exactly there and have added to Merleau-Ponty's understanding and, uh, and, and the formulation of phenomenology. So I don't want to go too deep into, um, into the philosophy of this, but uh, what uh, feminist scholars have done, they have uh, thought about uh, knowledge production 
in a way that is not necessarily as Eurocentric, is more contextualized and where um, people are given a social location. So the gender is important, class is important, ethnicity is important, age is important, and all this. So, I mean, it's more about maybe blurring the boundaries which has been artificially created to understand certain topics and then they just got stuck. Mm. And that's what we are doing most of the time. And so, so now I think as all of us are evolving our subjective experience, yeah. I, I, I guess that we, we are evolving uh, of co- the understanding and the depth of the subjective experience. So we are trying to get to the complexity of it. Mm. So also that is represented in the scientific methods and yeah. gen, uh, journals. This this is really exciting to yes. see that. Yes. And, and also, I think, finally, uh, if you are talking, sitting here, and you have done the research, I mean, I think we are looking at, the we are accepting the complexity yeah. which human beings and the relationship with the nature presents us. Absolutely, absolutely. The complexity is fundamental because I think... Um, at times, in order to think, we need to use abstract categories. And by doing so, we tend to exen- essentialize quite a lot. So um, going back to the context, the social, uh, historical, political context, but also the context of a person's individual experiences is, is very important as well. So. Yeah, so so I'll, I'll sh- share one example to make it yeah. even more you yeah. know, clearer and maybe bring it to a more general uh, point. Yeah. I think in what you were talked about, the gendered yeah. uh, approach and how certain uh, methodologies yeah. has been, you know, categorized. Uh, and of course, there's, there's no um, um, surprise that most of the fields in sciences and social sciences is dominated by most of the males and no matter what the causes but i think some of these methods i think get stuck with this rationalized approach which you were talking about Mm -hmm. only talking about uh, that what is the data coming out of the person we are talking to through Mm -hmm. their memory and we can just objectively analyze it and then write a report Uh, i think one of the very clear examples is in evolutionary biology where um, they were trying to look at uh, apes Uh, I, i can't I can't, please don't. I mean, I don't know the exact details. This is just if anyone wants to look, look and Google it. So they, they didn't understand the behavior of the female apes or monkeys, w- whatever they were researching. But uh, so, so and then the female uh, scientists and evolutionary biologists were not in the field. And for decades, they just keep on missing certain aspects. Uh, to actually find out because they were categorizing certain female behaviors as like, oh, it's just some, you know, behavior which they do, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And the moment um, some f- female biologist came, it was like, oh no, I know what, what is it. It, it, it. This is about this cycle which uh, they are going through. And uh, so they were not looking at all from that perspective. And it actually, it actually, one of the reasons, like one of the very uh, clear examples that, you know, bringing in a different kind of uh, approach to a situation can lead to a completely new breakthrough. So, I mean, this looks like, I mean, I, I, it looks like a very compassionate approach and more holistic. And I don't want, I mean, you are saying it, it's a feminist approach, but yeah. it looks like an amazing approach. I don't want to give it to only a feminist name. I want to yeah. be part of it. <laughs> you can. I am, I am, here I am, yes. yeah. <laughs> so is this, is this, I mean, this looks like uh, an approach, it seems like, uh, brings in more uh, emotional perception uh, and emo- range of emotions. Uh, let's not I use mean, Yeah, emotion is certainly one aspect of it. There is also the social construction as well, because I think in the example that you made earlier about, you know, the apes, I think there is an element also of uh, social construction. So the extent to which people um, also... Uh, as, as you know, the, uh, understanding is very often a social construction. Um, something else that, um, because you know, not everything is uh, limited to gender. And if you think 
um, about the fact that identity politics in the 70s, the way that they were actually initially um, articulated and understood, they functioned on, um, you know, the separation of different silences. So you had like yeah, the feminists arguing, yeah, women, we want to be recognized. Then you had LGBT groups saying we are, you know, non-heterosexual, we want to be recognized for that. You had black people saying, hey, where are, you know, especially in America, where are Afro, uh, African-American uh, voices? And then you had the students and the workers' movement saying, what about social class? Yeah. So it was a moment where all these kind of movements and uh, politics were structured around individual identities. Now, um, things are changing. So now, for instance, intersectionality and new, the new paradigm, which is really dominant in, in sociology of intersectionality, helps to understand the extent to which these identities can be, cannot be understood in isolation. They have to be understand, understood in combination with each other. Okay, so uh, <coughs> I mean, a, a path towards more holistic approach mm. and methods mm and generating knowledge mm. regarding rather than um, you know dividing each and everything and then looking just at one aspect of it and i think this is why cross-cultural uh, studies have been done these days a lot and even the institutions uh, which are being built upon this this idea that you cannot just look at one thing from one aspect and just determine, yeah, yeah what, what, what that? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what what we are looking at. So, so what did you what did you find in in one of the wh what were the stories? If you want to share of those migrant women you found, or, or do you want to share something? What kind of results came out of that? Okay, so just to give you an example of how the methods that I use work, um, another approach that I use is uh, digital storytelling. So digital storytelling is really interesting because it aims at uh, uh, producing a very short clip that is normally a video clip, but doesn't have talking heads. So the people who actually uh, participate, you know, realize that short clips don't actually appear themselves, um, their, their voice does. And uh, so it's a, it's a method which is really centered on voice and, um, and, and these films are realized through a couple of days workshops where um, participants are um, elicited um, or participant stories are triggered uh, through certain activities until a story is created. Okay, so for instance, in the workshop that I run actually at my place with a, a storytelling facilitator, another researcher, and uh, six migrant women of different origins, some of them were of African origin, some of them were actually European origin, they were all volunteers in, um, uh, in, in third sector organizations, um, you know, wrote their own stories. And at the end of the stories, um, they, um, you know, they, they read their story, which was then recorded. By looking at the stories, you can see how, for instance, uh, one Mexican woman came to the UK as um, uh, for, for marriage migration. So for, she met somebody who she British who she fell in love with, and she came to the UK. And, but then she experienced all the kind of de-skilling that a lot of uh, Latin American women experience when they come to the UK. There are, there are many reports and studies that indicate that um, Latin American women tend to be highly skilled very often in their country of origin. And then when they come to the UK, they have to accept much more humble jobs because their English is not maybe up to standard or just because they because it's really difficult for them to find a similar job. So you can see from these stories and I could give you many examples um, how then personal stories talk to more political and well-researched facts that are not just about that particular person they are about 
you know, a group or a community. Yeah, I mean, I, I can totally, some in somewhat level, relate to it because mm. one of my journeys is something similar. I mean, nothing like that, of course. I, I can't even imagine what they went through. But so what was the... Uh, different result you think which came out of this methodology if so let's say if you would have done some interviews and that's all what would have happened or a focus group well i think to, the, you probably would have got a similar result so i'm not arguing that the results are completely different i think with this kind of methodologies the emphasis is more on the process so you can write on the process how the process comes about you can reflect more on the ethics of doing research you can reflect more on the importance of voice you know so y y you just look at different aspects of the research pro uh, process i'm not arguing that this kind of methodology leads you to completely different yeah. um, findings. So w what are you doing next with this research? I mean, what's going yeah. on afterwards? Uh, right. Yeah. So um, I'd like, yeah, I'd like to say a little bit more on my research on migrant women, maybe uh, that I looked at, you know, I, I looked at uh, the position of migrant women in British society. Uh, I looked at um, I the impact of austerity on migrant women because there are several data that actually uh, confirm that uh, BME women in particular have been hit more hardly by austerity politics. Um, and uh, more recently, I wrote an article on Discover Society on uh, uh, family migration and uh, the increasing uh, focus on migrant women when it comes to integration policies. Yeah. And if you look at the latest report, the case review on uh, integration in the UK, um, this review really uh, has an issue <laughs> with migrant women. And migrant women are represented in a very problematic way. Then this kind of uh, perspective is being echoed in a more recent uh, integration green paper that also has created a lot of um, you know, debate. Um, and frictions uh, really around the fact that yes, a lot of this strategy is uh, viable and very welcome, but some academics uh, are and, and, and communities are not particularly happy about the fact that Muslim people and particularly Muslim women are singled out in this strategy. Um, so, so, so yeah. what is, what, wh how come uh, the, the uh, like migrant women or certain particular religion yeah. is being singled out well it is single it is being singled out because um it's for several reasons i mean it's yeah. a really big topic but because um muslim people have been held responsible for the failure of multiculturalism and uh, from the 2001 riots in the northern city of uh, England, when uh, you know Asian youth has clashed with the police or with white people living in uh, places like uh, Oldham or um, Bradford, um, they've been accused of living segregated and parallel lives, and this kind of rhetoric has uh, entered the. The, the public discourse in the UK until today. So in the past 15 years, the ways in which uh, Muslim people have, you know, are talked about um, has not really changed. And migrant women in particular are seen as the social reproducer of, you know, problematic kind of uh, citizens. Um, and this is made even more complex by the fact that one of the uh, biggest, perhaps, sources of migration in this country is arranged, arranged marriages with Pakistani and Bangladeshi people who, according to the word of Louis Casey, who wrote this report, add a generation for each generation of migrants because there's so many spouses who come in on the basis of their legal rights to family reunification. So this is at the moment highly contested. Okay, and so and this is uh, what I'm also engaging with in my research.
So, uh, j- j- to, to just, um, I'm yeah. curious. Yes. So, j- there's so many details in that. Yeah. So, so my, so this is about migrant women or. Uh, it's about it's about it's about migration as a phenomenon, and it's about the extent to which migrant women are singled out as uh, those people who are most difficult to integrate. Yeah, and this kind of documents don't recognize that integration is always a two-way process. So it's not just the onus is not just on the people who come in, it's also on society and the kind of services and structure that are provided in order to facilitate this integration so exa- i mean i think it makes sense if, if i'm if i'm getting yeah. it right you're not saying that oh yes there is they are completely coming here with a v- adopting of whatever your society or society over here is mm-hmm. but it's been already criticized a lot that all of the problem lies on the people who are coming to the city or the UK country, but yeah. we don't have any responsibility or as if there is nothing which could be done. So uh, so regarding the m- migrant woman yeah. coming here, yeah. I, I just want to know that w- what are the what are the steps which could be taken to actually balance that narrative? Yeah. For instance, one important step would be to recognize that uh, migrant women are very often active subjects, that they have an agency. They are not just passive subjects who are, uh, you know, at the receiving end of patriarchal norms. They are not just those people who actually are, um, you know, those those anti-modern subjects who are actually just uh, perpetrating these very um, backward practices such as, uh, you know, child marriage, arranged marriage and all these, you know, kind of dark practices that are normally attributed uh, to them. So, for instance, um, one important step would be also uh, recognize that one of the reasons why several uh, women who arrive from uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh uh, don't access, uh, uh, you know, the labor market immediately, they don't get a job immediately, is because of the life course they're in. If they come here to get married, very often, very soon after they have children. So how many women get a job immediately after they have children? Then another uh, very controversial um, accusation that is being uh, made to um, migrant women is their inability to communicate in English. this is also a very contentious issue because uh, several ESOL uh, provision has been cut, but now there has been a big allocation of money to help uh, migrant women to learn English. So something is being done there in recent times. So, uh, so one of the things which I noticed is that you're saying that in in most of the journal articles, the narrative has been heavily negative towards those women who are coming from Pakistan or Bangladesh. Yes, not in the journal article, in the media. In the media, in the media and in these policy reports, they are really key, important reports because they are orienting the policies that are being made with regards to integration. So this is quite important. Yeah. S- yeah, so... Uh, one of the things you mentioned was that they they come here as an arranged marriage. I mean, could you could you explain more that what you meant by that, uh, or or how how do, how does the process of this migration start, or or what uh, or are there different stories uh, regarding? Uh, I think th- well, there are different stories for sure, and uh, I haven't explored this particular. I mean, I haven't spoken with specifically with Bangladeshi and Pakistani women, so I cannot really draw on their specific stories, uh, except in the latest project that I've been doing on polygamy, where we run three workshops using creative and participatory methods. Initially, we wanted to use digital storytelling, but then we realized that digital storytelling probably wasn't the best uh, method to actually tackle this kind of very thorny issues such as polygamy. 
So I, in that circumstance, during that workshop, I did have the opportunity to talk to some Bangladeshi women. And it sounds like for Bangladeshi women is completely normal to, you know, arrange, you know, to accept the husband that their family proposes to them and take this as an opportunity for transnational migration. In order to do that, they, they uh, use a caveat in the law, which is uh, the law, migration law, it means that human right allows for family reunification. So spouses from overseas can come to the UK uh, legally. Yeah. Yeah. And so marriages are uh, being arranged according to that. And that kind of enables forms of transnational migration that wouldn't be possible without a kind of cultural setting, if you want. Yeah. I mean, migration is uh, at the core of uh, human history forever. So, yes. There's so much that has been, you know, so, so, so at the center of so many debates and issues. I mean, I don't particularly want to go into Brexit, but migration yeah. clearly played a huge role. And even now what's going on in Italy after the election and the kind of really controversial positions that politicians are taking towards migration is very problematic. So do, do you have any view regarding uh, the migration into Europe? Uh, what the the recent last few years? What's well, going on? Well, of course, I've got news. Please, please. <laughs> or, or, or I mean, I know you have worked on one of the papers yeah, uh, yeah. on uh, uh, in the uh, migration in the European Union. Uh, yeah, I. This is the special. Yeah, this this was the special issue um, that we wrote, and uh, this uh, special issue. Yeah, looks at that, but not just. Yeah, you know, there's, there's intra-European migration, so there's not just kind of the people from outside Europe who come to Europe, there's also a lot of intra-European migration, so for instance, Italian workers who go to work in Belgium, you know, is, is much more complex than it seems. I mean, with regards to the kind of migration that is happening from uh, the African continent to Europe, of course, Italy is like a gateway for that. And uh, this is a very complex issue because, you know, policies have, have been uh, reinvented all the time. The kind of borders agreement are, are changing all the time and the kind of op opening or closing all these gateways yeah, creates massive uh, you know, processes, if you think about what is happening in Libya now, that uh, not as many migrants as before arrive from, uh, from Africa. This is really telling. So uh, I actually remember one of the words you were deconstructing, which is uh, how crisis has been associated with the word migration. Yeah. So what is this kind of discourse is about? When, how, how would you describe or... What does that mean when someone says a oh, migration crisis? Because this is something yeah. very commonly used pretty much everywhere. And mm -hmm. even if you are talking compassionately or even if you are talking negatively, whatever way you are going about mm -hmm. it, you use the word migration crisis. Right. Yeah, uh, it's a very good question how to talk about it. I'm always a bit concerned when people ask these <laughs> questions because I don't have any ready-made solution to hand. Uh, and at times, you know, mm, yeah, I mean, it, it's a very complex um, issue. But uh, certainly how to talk about it is a, is a good question because I think that the way to talk about it is in a more compassionate way. So as yourself, um, you know, in your previous question, were asking, um, compassion is... Uh, no, I think this is very important. You are right, because uh, when in first part of our conversation, we were talking too abstractly about all the methods yes. and why it's... Uh, yeah. integration is important and yeah. why accepting complexity yeah. is important i think it is good if we clarify that why are we talking about that method in yeah. so much depth without any examples it's because the intentions are very important i think yeah. in in research or in s yeah. if you're trying to solve yeah. a problem so if if what i see in your research method mm -hmm. is a lot of 
compassion and uh, being empathetic. So I think if any knowledge or even scientific procedures are done through these approaches which represent these values, I think it is a very important thing. I, I do really admire you for that. And that is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. So I think it is it is important that we do mention these kind of... This, yeah. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, going back to the compassion point, uh, for instance, right, when people arrive to Italy from Africa, people think, oh, there are, you know, they, there is this distinction between the deserving, the undeserving migrants, the people who actually have the right to apply for refugee status, and people who are actually just economic migrants and therefore like a less deserving kind of migrant, okay? But then if you look at the journey that they went through before taking that shaky boat that might or might not take them to the other side of the Mediterranean Sea um, is full of, uh, you know, really grueling experiences. You know, people, especially from Eritrea, lots of people have to flee their country uh, go into Sudan, uh, stop in uh, countries between Eritrea and Libya to make the money necessary to give to the smugglers. When they arrive to Libya, they risk being kidnapped by traffickers and taken to Egypt, where they are subjected to torture and uh, extraction of organs very Often, So you can see that these people that we uh, refer to as in a disembodied manner as the migrants have these stories and they do risk their life to come here. So they do risk their life just to uh, give it a try and see how a different life would look like. They do it because they have really, you know, serious reasons to do that yeah there's maybe there's no other choice i mean uh, absolutely there, there is either absolutely. death or yeah. just constant torture and yeah. th that is yeah. one of the big reasons i mean this is yeah. very fascinating that yeah. most of the people who come so you know i'm not even talking about that uh who who is deserving and who is not and but it is fascinating that people who come through these difficult experiences uh, we would call them as undeserving uh, while not realizing that why would as just as a human nature why would someone bring their family and the kids through this horrendous method which we would not even think of actually just just adopting in any way even for fun even for dreams yeah. and uh, what is behind it so some people just say that this is not our problem i mean what what is the what is the answer to that i mean they say oh yeah they're born in some other continent and this is one of the comment i actually heard from uh, my <coughs> partner's friend <coughs> they were talking about uh, and they were there in new york so they talk about that yeah this is not a problem they are they are born somewhere far away and uh, they bring in uh, it, it's again same thing what you were saying it, mm -hmm. it is it's a lot, lot of pressure on our country this is not our problem I mean, how how w what's your uh, approach to this these kind of language? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm very critical. I mean, I don't I don't yeah I don't I don't, I'm very critical of that kind of language and the way it is uh, dangerously reproduced in the media. For instance, if you go to the Migration Museum, which is a really interesting place to go, I brought my students there this year, um, there is uh, a wall full of Daily Mail um, titles uh, demonizing migration. And I think it's so interesting to see all those titles saying like completely unfounded, unempathetic, demonizing statements, uh, reinforcing this crisis narrative that migrants are here to steal our jobs and that they are dangerous people and that they are potential terrorists, which is what the dominant discourse also says. Um, it's totally 
you know, regurgitated by the media constantly. So it's no wonder that people like the person you mentioned just now kind of has this uh, superficial positions on the subject matter. Yeah, I think with migration, it is true that you have worked on the discourse of, of the word itself because uh, we don't give it an enough deeper thought you don't have any migrant i mean I, when i say you i mean anyone yeah. uh, who is just talking about it they might have not experienced themselves that yeah. what it is never have been put into that yeah. that place yeah. so would w- would be easy to just borrow a c- ideological conception which is just very easy and it's available <coughs> and and then while you are borrowing it it also comes with the uh, like a group so you are now part of a group so you belong somewhere and uh, so so these all uh, pitfalls i think are there and it is very important to actually deconstruct and you know maybe ask people to think about what, what okay if you think there are challenges and there are problems you know you think from yourself rather than having a hate or, or a split uh, again every, anytime we have a problem or a difficulty i think sometimes we get into this uh, state of uh, me and you which is common sometimes yeah. and it's easy to get into me and you when yeah. the difficulties are exactly yeah very true it's about othering people who are not like us and it's about a very kind of deep rooted sentiment of a need to belong and by wanting to belong defining who is part of your group and who is not part of your group so and i think for us probably this kind of problems resonate particularly because i mean i am a migrant although i am an european migrant so but i come from south of you know uh, europe that has its own problem and i live in in the uk that at the moment doesn't see particularly favorably european migrants so and your your origins are from pakistan yes yes I, so, I, but were you born here no 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 yeah. i am also a migrant who yeah. went through a very <laughs> brutal process yeah i mean I, yeah. I i i it's classified i can't even share how right. brutal it was. i'm <laughs> right. kidding i'm kidding not right. really it's just so many people just go through this brutal process yeah. but i mean there are problems in migration of course that's why it's a difficult topic and problems do originate because we have now built borders and now many of our cultures are very very separated so of course there would be tension okay let's call it tension so what would be the tensions which you think uh, are created through migration or do you think that all the tensions which has been pointed out are superficial uh, i don't think it's superficial at all and that's why i'm studying it and i think there's so much to say uh the, the why i think it goes back to the ancestral uh, point about belonging perhaps you know and how people feel safe in defining where they belong and what belongs to them uh, and uh, are not ready to share with people who are perceived as others but this is a really long history of humanity that has been <laughs> defined by that so it's a really big question yeah yeah <laughs> okay so this is amazing of course that you are you are trying to kind of solve this uh, complex problem and belonging whether it is in the tribe or in the city or is in the country it's just yeah this is individual human problems we suffer from our that where do we belong and of course as a species as a group we are sometimes confused about it is that one of the reasons why your research is also in the city spaces uh, because this seems like a connection to to that uh, part where you are talking about gendered spaces um well no i think i've been interested in the city because uh the city provides uh, symbolically uh an imaginary for decision making you know the 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 agora the square the place where decisions are made um and also because the city is an ambi- 
unbelievable, intricate, complex set of uh, people and, and, and issues and organizational layers. And uh, in cities, this um, city, the whole idea of citizenship comes from the city as well, right? So um, the reason why I'm interested in city is because this is where... Um, most studies have been done as well uh, about, you know, how women appropriate and use the city. Up until the 80s, um, there was this emphasis on, um, like, dangerous spaces for women, so spaces that were unsafe for uh, women to go uh, because of this fear of attacks of, or, 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 or violence. Uh, sexual violence. Um, then it wasn't until the 90s that the city was seen as a more emancipatory uh, space for women. So where you can just go, you can use the city, use what the city, you can be yourself, you can anonymize yourself if you want, you can find new groups, um, become an activist if you want, and just live your life maybe without the burden of being um, you know stigmatized or uh, judged according to sexist biases which is what very often happens in smaller towns or rural settings i guess yeah so so it is a way <coughs> to actually free uh femininity uh, or, or is is that why you are uh, talking it as a as a feminist approach towards the cities because women are more uh, free of the old stigmas uh, when they are in the cities. Yeah, there is there is an argument uh, for that for sure that the city can be a more you know a space that where women are more free to appropriate their like or, or even to, to, to play out their identities in, in the way that they want to play out. This is one of the arguments. But um, yeah, but the city has been studied in a gender perspective also from a more planning, for instance, um, so to a more planning, say, lens, because, you know, that some scholars <coughs> have said that um, cities uh, tend to discriminate women because cities are shaped on the whole idea of production. So if, even if you look at London, right, London is all connected centrally. But then when you have to go from a part to no North London to the next part of North London is really difficult. Yeah. And so this has been really also interpreted from a, gen you know, from a gender perspective by saying that this kind of pro production uh, bias in building city favors, uh, you know, men or it has very much you know, done so in the past and for uh, people who are dedicated to social reproduction so care of the elderly or the young this is uh, you know cities are much more difficult to navigate if you think about accessibility to public services for instance you know how many tube stations in london don't have uh, uh, you know an elevator for women to go around in the prams for instance right so there's so you know so many aspects of the city that can be looked at uh, in a gender perspective so in terms of access in terms of appropriation of space in terms of uh, how the identities are played out so you can really that's very interesting i mean actually the so the city just the plan of the city itself yeah. has a yeah. certain bias towards production yeah and that creates a lot of barriers very of course so. towards yeah it's a very interesting point yeah. but i think that is a problem with uh, with an over emphasis on production yeah and uh, yeah. yeah so so definitely and also f with regards to city is also how are now the city planned uh, to favor consumption spaces and the expenses of public spaces such as squares you know if you compare for instance european cities with uh, you know american or uh, british cities european cities have squares have public spaces where people can hang around and meet each other and go there with the children or relax and read how many spaces like that outdoor spaces such as square 
we have in London. Not yeah. many. We have several shopping malls. We have several spaces that are exclusively dedicated to consumption. But that kind of uh, public space, which is a more kind of European uh, idea of how cities are, you know, planned, is is missing here. I I miss it as well. Yeah, no, me too. <laughs> I, I've lived in Edinburgh for a long time, yeah. and uh, I definitely feel this difference. But would you think that this approach regarding uh, so th- you would portray that as a as a feminist approach? Not necessarily, but scholars who have looked at the city from uh, a feminist perspective have really looked at that particular aspect of the importance of public spaces, for sure. For some reason, I might be just biased about it because I actually do prefer places which have more by bi- oh sorry more. Um, balanced approach yeah. uh, anything because i've experienced uh, overpopulation so i was in lahore and it's it's, yeah. it's somewhere around london the population and it's a, it's it's pretty much close to london i'm not sure i think it's 11 million yeah. or something uh, and uh, it's more condensed yeah uh, so whenever there is a pressure of uh, production in a very small space it, it tends to produce some sort of a negative approach towards the individuals itself. So all the efforts, all the machinery becomes the point of preference and everyone who is actually running the machinery becomes someone who would, which, which are secondary. So I think that is why you, you're talking about squares and uh, public spaces because that would actually break that circle of production as if everyone is just running to produce so I completely agree with you but um, one of the biggest <coughs> problem with our markets is that incentives uh, only come to those people at this point that's how the system I think has been built who would work more or who would earn more money I mean I'm not saying that would make them happy but that is where the incentives are, are written about so it would be good to, so so you're not discussing that, oh yeah, I'm, uh, like how would... Well, in a city like London, that's quite evident what you're saying. For instance, last year, a couple of years ago, I went with my students to visit the O2 Arena to do a sort of urban ethnography of the O2 Arena and observing really l- the space of the OU Arena, the kind of advertisement, how much the, the space of the arena is securitized with guards there um, and uh, cameras everywhere. And the fact that even the benches in the O2 arena are made in a way that uh, uh, they have like separation kind of bars to avoid that homeless people actually use those benches to lie down and sleep in there. So I think it really makes you uh, question how uh, can we plan, design, have more hospitable, convivial um city able to welcome and incorporate the other not just those individuals that you were talking about who are be able to be super productive and yeah so integrated yeah i mean yeah. Th- this is my hope yeah with the future uh, <laughs> sci-fi kind yeah. of cities which are integrated with our um more natural desires somehow some sort of those markers which we are missing which which we don't feel in these kind of very artificial spaces and most of the people don't have opportunities to actually get out of the cities to escape that cycle and uh, that actually creates even more hunger maybe towards creating more of that process and that might just satisfy us and it would be very interesting to see a research like that and maybe break the cycle which we are kind of stuck in. Sometimes I, I'm i very aware of it and I try not to be, you know, get into it, but it's just so hard. It's, it's impossible. You find out about one month that, oh, I was just living in that city, in that space. And uh, yeah, so all this research, what, what, what are you hoping generally or what are you working on on next maybe individually whatever you prefer to sure (coughs) i can tell you uh, my future research you know 
projects, hopes, trajectories. Nice. So basically, uh, at the moment, I'm, uh, I'm writing up a report on the polygamy project that I um, that I mentioned before. I actually received some funding from the faculty to create uh, an impact for the REF for that project. So as part of that, I'm organizing a community event in a housing estate in Fisboy Park, where I will launch this uh, report and uh, all the participants, all the migrant women who came to share the stories during the workshop will be invited, but we decided to frame it more like a celebration uh, rather than a conference. So we'll have the research launch and then we'll have pictures, music, food, and uh, so this is something that's gonna happen quite soon uh, in early um, July. And then again, in early July, I'm organizing um, uh, an, an event for the Applied Sociology uh, Research Group. And uh, as part of this event, there will be opportunities to network and to really reflect on methodological imaginations, which is the title of the event, where people are invited to share their research practices and how they are creative in their research work, uh, what their epistemologies are, how they co-produce knowledge, how they work with communities. So these are the immediate, um, you know, kind of... Um, yeah, events that I'm working on and that I'm organizing now. And then I have a set of conferences I'm attending in the summer. And uh, yeah, I'd like to uh, soon have the opportunity to um, spend more time and more resources on the polygamy project. So ideally, I'd like to set up a bigger project and work on, on it more systematically. So, and I'm excited to be at Greenwich because I think it's a great place to be. And in particular, my sociology team is great, really supportive. And I have a lot of um, know, continuity with my colleagues' work. So I'm really lucky. I mean, I'm thrilled that <laughs> someone is working on uh, finding out new ways and more holistic ways to generate knowledge and to look at it. What would be the better way to do it? and inviting everyone else and integrating all of that. So thanks a lot for doing oh, it. Thank you for talking to me and for having me. If there anything else would you like to mention? No. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks a <laughs> thank lot, Elena. You.